0: Thanks for tuning in to Inspiring Women. This week, I'm speaking with Dr. Jen Pena. Previously, White House physician. In that office, 15 years of an Army combat veteran's work, where she was the first Latina in that office, the first from Puerto Rico. She also knows what it takes to put the job, your sworn duty, the Hippocratic Oath first, beyond personal beliefs. But when her ethics and her morals meant that she needed to face the circumstances of what it took to speak truth to power, she tells this story with amazing grace, as well as what it means to separate those difficult, scarring challenges of feeling wronged, hurt, and shining a light on the brilliance of a job well done with integrity. And she now is taking that energy her work in innovation and digital health to the island of Puerto Rico, her home where she is trying to change the landscape where the healthcare gaps and access challenges have only gotten worse. So now hear more stories like this every week on Inspiring Women by subscribing, but now let's hear from Dr. Pena. This is Inspiring Women, and I am Lori McGraw. Today, I am so excited. I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Jen Pena, and Dr. Pena is an internal medicine physician. She previously served as the White House physician under both the Obama and the Trump administrations. She was the personal physician for the United States Vice President, Mike Pence. She is 15 years as a former United States Army combat veteran. She also happens to be a digital health expert, a telehealth expert. Um, she's worked at a number of different companies together. Jen and I actually work on a company called Medica, an AI digital diagnostics platform company. We can talk about that a little bit. But um, importantly, she today is in Puerto Rico, where she has moved back home. She is the director. She directs the Vivaldi's free clinic for the Boys and Girls Club of Puerto Rico. And Jen, thank you so much for being on Inspiring Women.
1: Thank you so much, Lori. This is very humbling and super exciting.
0: This is very exciting, but let's start first with the most important thing. What is behind you there (laughs) on the screen? I mean, I'm looking at a level of workout stuff. I have to say I'm a little intimidated. I'm a Peloton (laughs) fan myself, but dual Pelotons. What's going on back there?
1: They're just there for show. I'm not going to pay any commission by Peloton. Uh, (laughs) So my my husband and I... uh, don't, don't get time to do many hobbies together. Uh, so one of the few things we do is we hop on the Pelotons and we do the bikes uh, classes simultaneously. I must say he is so much better than I am. I won't ever be able to catch up with him, but it is fun <laughs> to try them together.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I think we now have covered what Jen does for fun and for relaxed <laughs> time. It's, it's it's the Peloton machine. But Jen, let's get started with sort of day-to-day. So you're leading a free clinic. You are working with a number of companies, including being, being chief medical officer of uh, Medica, but you have worked with and before with other many tech companies. What's day-to-day for you um, these days look like now that you've moved back home to Puerto Rico?
1: I'm trying to figure that out right now, Uh, Lori. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I just moved back home. It's only been three months uh, after 20-plus years of being away from the island. And currently, I'm actually consulting, as you said, uh, for several different uh, different technology platforms, uh, as well as directing the free clinic here uh, for the Boys and Girls Club, um, but really, my involvement in these tel- telehealth platforms is because I have a mission. Coming home was important to me. We have had such a mass exodus of providers, medical providers from the island that preceded Hurricane Maria, uh, but certainly worse since, since Maria. Uh, we've lost over 10,000 providers here on the island, and so for me, obviously, wanted to come back home, but also wanted to bring you know that talent back. I wanted to start some wave of. Uh, you know hopefully providers coming back to the island and contributing to you know the the gap in access to care that we have now Uh, so I call myself part of the desperate diaspora uh, and I'm back here and so day to day I uh, wake up you know we do the thing with the machines (laughs) we're still a very army uh, uh, at heart and we try to stay you know fit uh, and really spend a lot of time having meetings a lot of you know, thought discussions on how can we improve access to care here on the island. So that is my mission.
0: Well that it comes from a life of service as well and so I'd love to just get a little bit of the career trajectory I mean you were a very significant position as a physician in the army serving in the white house you know again across two administrations but the path to physician as if that weren't enough you know you have the 15 plus years I mean the United States um armed forces the army so just give us a bit of the career trajectory how did the army become a thing for you how did the path to a physician become a thing for you and then of course all of the technology and innovation um that you're deeply involved in as well how does that all sort of intersect and make sense
1: yeah it doesn't (laughs) (laughs) but i'm gonna make it make sense Uh Gosh, and when I hear all the the, the years, I, I start to think like, oof, there's the gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, uh, for the, the Army, the military service is is part of my family uh, legacy. Um, my father, my grandfather, my uncle, my cousins, everybody served uh, in the Army or the Armed Forces. So it was uh, just kind of part of my, of my upbringing and culture. Um, you know, the road to medicine, uh, I'm the first physician in my family. I, I did have... You know parents in healthcare. my mom is a nurse and my father's a pharmacist but you know uh, i kind of uh wanted to you know branch out and try medicine i'll be honest with you i did not go to college thinking i was going to be a physician i was actually a spanish major and i started doing medical interpreting at the local hospital in new haven and realized gosh there is such a, a lack of spanish-speaking physicians in this country and as i very quickly learned there's so much more that goes into interpreting then translating words i mean there's this cultural component that was missing uh, and so really, that's what motivated me to pursue uh, medicine. Uh, so did that, joined uh, the Army, like many of us, really, uh, partly also to pay for med school. <laughs> it's very expensive. So I went in for the money and stayed for the mission. That's what I like to say. Uh, you're but, not uh, You're not
0: the first person. I've, I spoke to um, a mother-daughter duo um, who also were in the armed services. And they did, they went for the education and the money and then came to, love and appreciate and live the mission. I mean, it's a, it seems like a common sort of like way of going about it, which is different than perhaps it was decades and decades ago.
1: That is true. And for a lot of people, I mean, that's kind of how it ends up being, right? You don't really know what you're getting into. <laughs> you do it because you have a need and then you end up, you know, uh, really finding your your niche, finding you know that passion and 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 that desire to serve. So that's really what happened with me. Um, you know, I uh, I did all of my training post medical school in the army. Uh, so I did my residency at Walter Reed, and then stayed uh, you know for for a long long time as an internal medicine physician. Did outpatient, inpatient duty stations deployed uh, as well downrange, uh, and then <laughs> somehow ended up at the White House, which many people don't know, but it's actually a military duty station. I didn't know uh, you know it's kind of one of those units that is, is uh, on the down low you know uh, people don't really know about it uh, but I had a very unique opportunity during uh, my time in service to take care of general officers at one point uh, in an executive medicine clinic uh, and uh, had the very awesome and unique opportunity of having the first female surgeon General of the Army as my patient actually. Uh, And she was the one who nominated me for the position, and so uh, very grateful, ended up uh, spending close to four years at the White House, as you mentioned, under both administrations, entered as a junior position under the Obama and Biden administration, and uh, uh, left as a position to Vice President Pence, so a very rewarding experience. Came out, and, um, you know, my husband was deployed, uh, and out of necessity, really, pre-pandemic, ended up in telehealth. (laughs) I I needed a job that allowed me to move that wouldn't, you know, hold me to having an empanelment that I had to hold for a certain period of time because, you know, I had left service, but I still served vicariously through my husband. And so I still had to have that flexibility. And so ended up uh, going into telehealth and the rest is history. I've been doing this now for over four years um, and it's just been a new career. (laughs)
0: I want to talk about the innovation and and the telehealth but I actually want to talk a bit more about the you know the being a physician in the army and how you moved up because being a White House physician while it might be sort of a little known that it is a military position. It is a very senior position in terms of being a physician in the armed services. So, and you said that someone nominated you for that position. So, just talk like, how do you move up the ranks? Do you have to have sponsors? I'm not familiar with how the military works at that um, uh, specific level. How do you go about moving up? Are you just recognized and rewarded or is it a matter of finding those sponsors and um, seeking out those more plum assignments if you will?
1: Yeah, a little bit of both. I mean I like to say there's certainly there's certainly some talent that has to go into it, but I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge that a lot of it was just being in the right place at the right time. Um, you know I uh, you have to have combat experience because you the most of what you do is primary care but most of what you prepare for is a bad day. Mm -hmm. So you have to be able to have proven, um, you know, skill in a unique environment that is austere and have been able to demonstrate that you can perform critical care in that kind of an environment. So that's kind of a, a can't disclose too much statement that should give you enough information. (laughs) Um, You know, I, I, Again, I was uh, in this unique clinic opportunity where I was taking care of these general officers and the majority of them worked downtown DC at the Pentagon, et cetera. And so I had, that's the luck part. I just happened to be at the right place at the right time when that billet became available and it is a nominative position. And so you do have to have a star uh, nominate you for the position. It's an arduous interview process. It takes close to a year, goodness for me, uh, between the functional interviewing that goes into the position as well as the um, security clearance piece that goes into the position. Um, having grown up in Puerto Rico added a layer of complexity because they have to come here and talk to your kindergarten teacher, make sure you're a good student in kindergarten, you know? Oh
0: my gosh, wow. <laughs> I'd like to
1: say you have to be the most vanilla person on the planet to be able <laughs> to get this job. But um, but afterwards, you know, uh, again, very rewarding. My, my sister who's an educator likes to summarize my time at the White House as it was fun and it was real, but not both at the same time. <laughs> You know, you um, you definitely are in a, an environment and in an experience that 0.000001% of the world will ever get to see. Uh, but with it comes a significant amount of responsibility, and so that can be very, very stressful. Um, you know, as a woman, as a woman of color, certainly added complexities. I mean, let let's be honest. We're this is this is a chat about women and how we inspire each other and how we can represent ourselves best in in these positions of leadership, it's still very much a white man's world. Uh, There is medicine, there is military hierarchy, and then there is the White House. (laughs) I like to call it the triple threat for somebody that looks like me, right? So, um, you know, certainly also being a junior physician in the position and then getting promoted even to a higher level of responsibility as one of the principal physicians to one of, you know, the, the president or vice president, first and second families, comes with even an additional layer of scrutiny. But as one of my former patients like to say, he didn't need a, uh, a doctor to go play golf with. He had enough golf buddies. He needed a good physician. And <laughs> that's what I hang my head on. You know, At the end of the day is, did you serve with integrity? And were you a good doctor? And did you provide good care? I could look at myself in the mirror at the end of the day and feel good about that.
0: And certainly, your time—your time as a physician there was not without controversy. And you know um, that aside. Let's just talk about the reality. Certainly, the um, the Obama administration and the Trump administration were very different in their politics, um, and though there were lightning rod issues of the Trump administration about women, about people of color, and yet you are in a position where it is your duty and responsibility to serve without a political lens of whatever your personal, um, you know, values uh, might be. So let's just talk about how you manage that, because, you know, that is, um, that is not a unique situation, but certainly you were in a unique position where, I mean, those issues were every day in front of you, and there was a, a tremendous amount of scrutiny. So how did, how did you show up? And how did you sort of just reconcile whatever the personal feelings might have been at the time that you had to deflect or not bring to the assignment, if you will?
1: Absolutely. Still the biggest challenge that I think I've ever faced in my life. Um, you know, I, I think that duty station epitomizes the Hippocratic Oath. Mm-hmm. Uh, you truly, truly have to have a desire to serve that is unbiased, that is apolitical, um, that is truly selfless. You have to put all of your personal opinions aside and you have to be able to take care of whoever is in the position. You serve the office, you don't serve the person. But that is hard to do. (laughs) That is very difficult to do, especially at times when it's something that's very personal. You know, I'll I'll be honest, you know, let's talk about Hurricane Maria. I'm here at home. I'm here back in Puerto Rico. I'm here with a mission to improve access to care. That is my mission to come back home. You know, during the hurricane, there was a lot of negative press and negative uh, comments that were made about my island, my people. Um, and I was there serving the exact same administration that was generating some of this um, you know messaging. That was that was difficult. But what was also very rewarding was being able to come back home on one of those White House planes being able to load it with necessary equipment, meals ready to eat, generators, being able to have that access to actually make a difference and having, you know, that administration also support uh, me being able to do that. And so, you know, you have to take the good with the bad and you have to balance those things out. Uh, But as a physician, yeah, I mean, there were some days where it's like, why am I serving people who are not necessarily you know, in favor of the things I'm in favor of, that their ideals are not congruent with mine. Again, you just have to put your big girl pants on, as I say, and remind yourself that you're here to serve the office and not the person. That's the best that you can do. But as you know, unfortunately, for many people that serve in those levels of government, it becomes their life. Uh, they drink of the Kool-Aid, as we like to say, in the military, and they can't let go. There's something about the proximity to power that can make people feel powerful. And I'll be honest, it happened to me too. You have to be able to separate that because again, at the end of the day, you're the help. Mm
0: -hmm. It's not,
1: you're there to serve somebody else. Nobody's serving you. Uh, And so, you know, I like to think of that time as the opportunity of a lifetime for me, but not the opportunity for a lifetime. It shouldn't define who you are. It's an experience that has helped shape who I am now, but certainly did not define me.
0: So maybe I want to dive into, cause I think Jen, you know, again, at the most excruciating levels you were in, you have been in the circumstance where you find yourself, I'll just say, you know, so many women find themselves at one point in time in their career, particularly if they're moving into leadership, where they have to swallow hard on something and not sort of bring out the, you know, the anger, the, whatever the internal feeling is um, to manage a complex situation, so you've done that. Um, it's hard to do. It's emotionally draining. It's, um, you know, probably lots of screaming into pillows and things. So let's talk about like how did you? So you you had sort of some some um, things you went to, or how you how did you deal with it, and and how did you deal with it with an eye towards. It? Advice you'd give to others for how they will eventually or deal with it, and how do you also let go? I think some of the hardest things to do is actually release the feelings and not carry it with you because that's not only draining; it's physically, you know, not not helpful to you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I and I, I hope we're going to talk. I know you're a big proponent of mentorship, and so am I, but mostly because I've learned from my mentors and I have two mentors that have shared. And I don't have one mentor, by the way, right? I think it's difficult to find one person that's going to give you the perfect advice. I have many mentors. I think I have to draw on two of my mentors, um, you know, advice, advices to me. One of them was a colonel in the army who at one point told me, the best revenge that you can have is to live well. That, That always stuck with me. Because you can find or try, when you're upset or, you know, you've had bad experiences, you can try to concoct ways to get back at people, you know, and especially as women in these positions when you feel like you've been slighted or done wrong. But the best advice was, no, just find a way to live better, live well. That's going to be, you know, the best way that you get back at these people who do you wrong. And honestly, it's served me very, very well. In terms of, you know, your question about how I would advise, you know, a younger me or a younger woman. And I have now, you know, after all these experiences, again, one of my mentors who was a nurse with me at one point in one of my clinics, uh, I call her my second mom, my work mom. She gave me the advice of anytime you leave a room, you show them how your skirt fits in the back. To me, that translated into like the fiercest femininity. It's like no you walk out with integrity you walk out because you've done a good job and to remind myself that you should always leave a place better than you found it if you can do that and you walk out you show them how your skirt fits in the back and you have no regrets so i don't know if that answers the question but i think that you know that those are the mottoes that i have to remind myself sometimes so that i don't get an ulcer <laughs> so that i don't have to continue to scream in a pillow because I might not always get what I want, but as long as you do it that way, then you know, you don't have anything to feel bad about. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so when you left the White House, and I don't want to go into all the um, details, and people can read read um, the history of Dr. Jane Jan Pena and her time at the White House, but you left the White your work at the White House, and it and it came with a um, cloud of lots of difficult issues going on that you were in the center of, as somebody who was with integrity, putting spotlights on particular issues. So that's um, I don't want to go into the details of the issues. I want to talk about how did you did you feel that you were able to leave it behind how did you release the emotions that you were embroiled in the excruciating spotlight that you found yourself under how were you able to get away from that difficult time i would be
1: lying if i said i'm 100 percent over that um and mostly because i felt like my work there wasn't done um You know, I was supposed to be there on paper until the end of the administration. I was very proud of the work that I was doing. But most importantly, and this is not to gloat, but proud that I was the first Latina in that position, the first Puerto Rican woman in that position. We had had Antonia Novello as Surgeon General, but not as a physician at the White House serving at that level. It was important to me to have that example and set that example for other Latina physicians in the military and outside of the military. So I felt like I was robbed. And that piece, is probably the one that I, I can't quite get over yet. But again, I left with integrity. You know, um, I don't think that I could have continued taking the same oath that I took every time I was promoted in rank, the same oath that the president and vice president, all elected officials have to take if I didn't do the right thing uh, and make sure that those that were in charge of the healthcare of the highest executive in our country and in the world, arguably, um, were not of the right um, ethical and moral fabric that we would expect of officers and physicians. And so, yeah, I'm—I I could say maybe I'm like 80% there. I don't know if I'll ever reach 100, but that's a test that I might never get to ace, and that's okay. <laughs> that
0: makes me well. Curious. I'll tell you what, and it's—I just, just think it's—it's—it um, it really is profound advice. Again, um, there is no woman who has um, achieved a level of leadership who has not gone through at some circumstance a difficult situation. And um, and I'm sure you've seen it too in others. I've seen so many um, women, friends, people, mentors, mentees who go through those periods. But when you latch on to all of the negative and let that consume you, it really isn't helpful. And that's, you know, it doesn't matter how righteous or whatever you might feel or wronged um that that may be i just have found that the um the the toll that it takes if you can focus on the contribution that you made the integrity that you had and what you accomplished that's just great advice um, for others i think jen that you are showing as a living example so thank you for sharing that that's just really i think um exceptional I, I appreciate that so let's talk about maybe innovation in um, tech. And I also want to talk about Puerto Rico and what you're doing there. But so when did innovation and in tech become this sort of, you know, additional interesting thing that you are now so involved in at so many levels?
1: Well, it, again, it was like a necessity thing <laughs> coming out of the military. Isn't it funny? Sometimes when you're not looking for things, the best things happen. And I like to think that my life has been a lot like that. I mean, even you know, leaving the island and going to an Ivy League school for college or going to the military and ending up at the White House and ending up in this amazing world of tech. None of these things I was looking for, they just kind of happened. So I don't know, but uh, again, my husband was deployed. I, nobody would give me a practice because I had to move. And, and so <laughs> I end up in tech, you know, I started my career in tech at Oscar Health uh, and I'm very grateful for my time at Oscar Health. It just really, it redefined my career. Uh, this was pre-pandemic. And so virtual medicine was still kind of a little known thing. The adoption wasn't great. Certainly not in comprehensive primary care, which was what I was brought in to do at Oscar. You know, we already had a platform for acute care telehealth, both in sync and asynchronous modes of of, uh, delivery. And I was brought in to say, okay, how do you take this, build me a PCMH model that is virtual first, that works with the insurance, that is (laughs) value-based, that uses technology that is in the most underserved regions of the U.S. Go. (laughs) And I'm like, oh my goodness, right? But what an exciting time and we built it. And in the middle of the pandemic, we were prepared because we were already doing it. And so being at the forefront of that innovation And now seeing all of the models of comprehensive, complex care that are, are, you know, leveraging virtual first, like it gives me goosebumps because I said, man, I was at the beginning of that and that was cool. Um, You know, I, to your point earlier, I've then had an opportunity to, to, you know, participate in several different companies and platforms. You know, when you're in startup, there's a lot of exits, right? (laughs) So I have ended up in, you know, several platforms that have had, you know, quick exits, but What's been really cool about that is that prior to an exit, you have to grow, 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 grow really fast. And so you have to innovate, new service lines. You have to find ways to you know, be creative, to engage with patients, to acquire patients, to keep patients, to get good quality. To me, anybody who's worked with me will tell you, Jen is all about quality. Uh, I need to make sure that the same quality standards that we adhere to in brick and mortar translate into virtual because it's very easy to forget you know your metrics of quality when somehow things are easier when you're leveraging virtual and i don't know if that makes sense but somehow people forget that you still have to adhere you know to the best evidence-based practice
0: um you know, and so and now, I, and now you're trying to bring all of that, you know, to where you live. And so to, yeah. you know, make up for this mass exodus of physicians. So talk a little bit what you're trying to get done at Puerto Rico, you know, with all of the physicians who have left. And, you know, when we first met, I was just so personally inspired because, you know, this is not just a mission. This is a people deserve quality care. And you're here to figure out the ways, as I understand it, to bring that care. Care to the citizens, the residents um, who are living um, in your in your home.
1: Absolutely. I, you know, I'll tell you, I think we often leave the future of healthcare in the hands of politicians and not to go back to politics, but politicians are the worst people at being able to define what healthcare needs to look like. Mm-hmm. You know, I really do believe that it requires strong healthcare advocates to identify needs and to bring in solutions that are, you know, that they're practical solutions that can actually be implemented. So for here, you know, back in Puerto Rico, as I said, there's a there's been a mass exodus of providers, so we have a manpower shortage. And again, not to get political, but we also have added gaps in care that even that we don't even see in the mainland. For example, reimbursement rates for CMS here are tremendously lower than they're mm-hmm. in the mainland, even though our citizens contribute equally to these programs during their work life. And so that has aggravated this issue with providers because talent doesn't wanna come back because you know they're not gonna get paid the same. In addition, telehealth here has been even more regulated than it has been on the mainland. To give you an example, licensure here to practice telehealth is a separate license that is equally, if not harder to obtain than a full license. It's mm. also prohibitively expensive. And so you know, from a regulatory standpoint, from an adoption standpoint, from a cultural standpoint, now you're trying to implement solutions in telehealth to try to bridge the gap in access with a culture that is very touchy-feely, with a culture that likes to see their provider. That my abuelita, my grandmother, my, may she rest in peace, she just passed away this past fall. 15-month survivor of hospice, by the way. God bless that woman's strength would always take a gift to her doctor for Christmas, right? And so now you're trying to tell a culture that is used to that, no, 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 you can talk to them via the phone. Mm -hmm. It takes so much more than just giving somebody a phone and a platform. And of course, uh, the the, the issue with broadband and digital accessibility, we are in fact an island surrounded by water. That is true. (laughs) And with that comes issues at times with connectivity. And so some of these things are pieces of the pie that some of the platforms that I'm consulting for are looking for solutions. And I am very driven by outcomes. I don't like to just propose good ideas. Again, in the military we call good idea fairies, people who have great ideas, but you have to identify commonalities in problems at a community level and come up with ideas of solutions that you can actually measure outcome. And so that's what I'm trying to do here you know, with the implementation of this free clinic, with trying to, you know, improve the access to remote diagnostics and remote monitoring. We're trying to improve, you know, adoption, getting out there, showing people that I'm one of you, I understand the culture. Guess what, abuelita, you can actually talk to your doctor more often if you do it on the phone. (laughs) And you can still send them a gift, right? (laughs) But it it takes boots on ground to deal with this particular community. And, you know, I had to recognize that and I'm still recognizing it more now that I'm back here and I'm living it. Uh, It's going to take time, but hopefully we'll make an impact and hopefully we'll be able to bring some of that talent back that has left you know, to, to practice here on the island.
0: There's so much in that. And, you know, we could go on and on, but I will also say, Jen, that, you know, when we spoke about some of these um, innovations that we're working on, what was so exciting to me is because the tech and the innovation and the simplicity and the opportunity, um, it's all there, but it's the application, it's the workflow, it's the adoption, it's really getting to the, is it actually improving the lives um, for patients that you so um, intimately under understand and see and obviously are working on. So, just, well, it, it is exciting. Um, listen, we are, uh, have run out of time. I could just like go on and on and on. Speaking with this, this is so much fun. You know, as we do close out here on Inspiring Women, Jen, I just love perhaps, you know, um, you've seen so much in what has been a really packed 20 years of experience in being a physician, now a tech leader, and also a service-oriented Army Cab combat veteran, a White House physician. Your best advice, you've been given advice, you've taken advice, but you have lived experience like probably no other. What is your best advice for younger women who are just starting out um, as they, maybe it's advice that you might've given yourself 20 years ago when you were starting out?
1: Yeah, I think that's gonna change with time. Uh, It probably will be a different answer if you ask me five years from now. I think right now is mentorship, is very important, but not just finding mentorship, you becoming a mentor. And I think as women, because I suffer from this too, I often feel like I don't have anything to offer to others, that my story might not be applicable, might not resonate, that I don't have enough lessons. It turns out just sharing experience can be better mentorship than any you know phrases or advice that you might get from people. And so find a mentor, but more importantly, be a mentor. It doesn't matter at what stage of career you are. There's always somebody who's looking up to you and you can always be a mentor to somebody else. So that's probably what I would say at this stage in life.
0: (laughs) Wow. That's great. And I appreciate so much you sharing your story and some pieces of your story on Inspiring Women. This has been a great conversation. I've been speaking with Dr. Jen Pena. And Jen, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, Lori.
0: This has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.